welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen me mention them because I have been using and loving and Instagramming their products for years. They have an amazing instant mushroom coffee. Hear me out before you think it's weird. I know mushroom coffee doesn't sound good. It's not only the best instant coffee I've ever tried. It's also pretty high up on the list of best coffee I've tried. It's cheaper than coffee shop coffee and it's so convenient because it's so portable and it tastes so much better. But it isn't just ordinary coffee. It has superfood mushrooms like lion's mane, cordyceps, and chaga mushrooms. And these mushrooms have some big health benefits and especially immune benefits. I personally especially love them for the energy and the mental clarity without the jitters from traditional coffee. And did I mention how good it tastes? So I always take these instant coffee packets with me when I travel. And I also always drink it at home these days now that they have a big tin that lasts about a month. So I don't have to open a little packet every day. Some friends of ours recently traveled for three months carrying only the backpacks on their backs and they brought an entire three-month supply of this instant coffee in their bag that had limited space. In other words, this coffee beat out a pair of jeans for how important it was to make it in the bag. It's that good. And of course, if you aren't a caffeine person, they also have a variety of mushroom teas and other products that don't have the coffee, so you can get the benefits without the caffeine. And I love them so much that I reached out and they agreed to give a discount to my listeners. So go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama to get 10% off. That's foursigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash wellnessmama. This episode is sponsored by Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. If you love the benefits of bone broth, but don't love the time it takes to make and how tough it can be to find quality bones to make broth, Kettle and Fire is for you. Their bone broth is a regular staple in my kitchen these days, and it's what I use to create the recipes in my new bone broth ebook. So they only use bones from 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised cattle that are never given hormones or antibiotics. Their broth is also unique because they focus on bones that are especially high in collagen, which is one of the healthiest things you can put in your body. You can find them at many Whole Foods on the West Coast, and you can also order online and get a discount at kettleandfire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. Again, that's kettleandandfire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. Hi, and welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I'm here today with Dr. Jay Davidson, who is a chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner, and he specializes especially in Lyme disease recovery. After seeing his wife deteriorate due to Lyme disease, he made it his mission to find solutions for her, and after she recovered, he turned his work to others who struggle with Lyme. Now as a popular speaker, international best-selling author, uh, he spreads the message of recovery from Lyme, and he's considered an expert in detoxification, drainage, and pathogen elimination. I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. Welcome, Dr. J. Oh, it's great to be here, Katie. I'm excited. So let's just jump in because I think this will be a topic that will be really enlightening for a lot of people. So to start, what is Lyme disease and how does one contract it? Yeah, so Lyme disease, um, you know, they call it the great mimicker. Uh, so it, it can be a little tougher to understand, a little tougher to diagnose, which we can always talk about as well, too. Uh, but Lyme disease is essentially a bacteria. Uh, specifically, it's called the Borrelia burgdorferi, uh, which is like a spiral-shaped bacteria, uh, what they call a spirochete. So there's just a couple other spiral-shaped bacterias. Uh, Lyme disease is one of them. Syphilis is is uh, another one of those. Um, but Lyme disease has different forms, which can make it a little bit more complex. It can change from its spiral shape to uh, more of like a ball sphere uh, or what's termed like a cyst to protect itself. Um, it can also go inside of our cells and basically hide inside of our cells. And this is where autoimmunity can start from with Lyme disease. And then um, some experts will say, and I, I will agree with them on this, there's a fourth form, uh, biofilm. And easiest way to kind of explain this is just there's different bacteria, bugs, viruses, they make colonies together and then they get like this layer of slime or snot or like a blanket over top of them. And all that blanket is, which is the, uh, technically the biofilm, is another way to protect itself. And Lyme disease, the Borrelia bacteria actually makes its own biofilm. So um, Lyme disease is known to be a bacteria, um, but definitely a lot more complex with some of the other things that get associated with it. And 
easiest way to contract it or what the CDC would say to contract is a tick bite, which is technically a tick sting. Uh, tick sting more like uh, mosquitoes than necessarily bite. But uh, I really believe there's a lot more ways to transmit Lyme disease than just a tick bite. Most people that have Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease diagnosed or suspecting can't remember a tick. They can't remember a bullseye rash. And that's kind of the telltale sign, at least in the standard medical world, is you get a tick bite or, you know, like I said, technically a sting. And then all of a sudden you get like this bullseye rash, which kind of looks like the retail target logo, you know, where you got like the circle and then the other, you know, circle outside of that. And most rashes, if you get that, that is Lyme disease. Like that's a telltale sign. But most rashes don't always look like that. And only about maybe a third of people actually even get rashes that can track Lyme disease from a tick. So while a rash is a sign of Lyme, it uh, definitely doesn't necessarily mean that you, uh, like if you don't get it, doesn't mean you don't don't have it. Gotcha. So what are some of the other ways someone could contract Lyme besides a tick? Because that's definitely the only one that I was familiar with in the beginning as well. Yeah. So um, modes of transmission, they've shown that uh, Lyme disease, for instance, uh, like University of Wisconsin did some research on cows and they actually showed that the spirochete was actually in cow's milk. Um, so, I mean, you can you can make a little bit of a jump. Obviously, we're not cows. <laughs> we're a different type of mammal human, but um, it's very easily to see that mom's that are producing breast milk could actually spread it to their child breastfeeding. Uh, they've shown that moms actually pass it within utero. So when baby is in, in the womb, that mom actually will give uh, Lyme disease to the baby. And there's actually quite a bit of research showing that issues, uh, babies passing away miscarriages can actually be from active Lyme as well. Uh, sexually transmitted, so partners um, can, can transmit it. There's a bunch of different uh, rodents and things that will actually carry it, um, like deer, birds, cows, horses, other mammals. Uh, but as far as like transmitting, spiders can actually uh, give Lyme disease, uh, fleas, mosquitoes, deer flies, a bunch of other flies like black and horse flies um, and, and many other insects. So the tick is um, kind of the accepted way, but there's definitely uh, many different modes of transmission. That's slightly terrifying, especially just the little bit I know of Lyme and how serious it can be. Uh, are there any tests that determine definitively if someone does have Lyme or not? Uh, no, that's a great question. I wish. <laughs> um, there's a lot of different testing out there. The important thing to remember about Lyme disease is that it's a clinical diagnosis, meaning that it's literally like, you know, the doctor has to use the brain, uh, you know, and look through history and examination. Um, and if I think some telltale signs, like I mentioned earlier, if somebody ha develops a bullseye rash after a tick bite or sting, uh, that's a telltale sign. That's Lyme disease. And that's possibly more of an acute phase versus chronic. But you'll get some argument in there as well. Definitely want to think of it as clinical diagnosis, but if you come back positive on a test, then I would assume that it is positive. It's more of if it comes back negative, it doesn't necessarily mean it rules it out. And standard testing right now in the medical world is ELISA and Western blot. It's a two-tiered method, meaning they run a test. If it comes back positive, then they run the other test. If that comes back positive, then quote-unquote, you're diagnosed with Lyme. But research has found that that's a 40 to 60% error rate, uh, which is like when I'm like 40 to 60%, like I feel like Katie could just do a coin flip and have a better, you know, odds of, of getting that test right. So I'm definitely not a fan of the standard two-tiered method of testing at all. Um, there's other companies that kind of take that type of testing a lot further, like Igenix. There was a company that I was a really big fan of uh, a little while ago, Pharmacin Labs. They have a, a blood test called the iSpot Lime, I like iPhone, uh, iSpot. Um, I haven't been using them as much, um, kind of been keying in from a, from a testing standpoint. I really like DNA Connections. Uh, they're based out of Colorado, and they have a urine PCR test. Um, but the key is you kind of want to stir the body up because, and this is maybe uh, an important thing just to make note of in the Lyme disease side of things is that spirochete, that spiral shaped bacteria doesn't like to necessarily float around the bloodstream. It loves joints, tissues, organs. 
So conventional like blood testing isn't always best because that's like not the target organ. You know where it likes to hide is the blood. Um, so the PCR DNA connections test, it's a urine collection so you can do it at home. Uh, but the key is you kind of want to stir it up, you know. So whether you get like a deep tissue massage, you know, you go depending on your state, you know, lift some weights and really try to, you know, move your joints around, get like a deep, you know, lymphatic massage or like a Reiki treatment or something. And then after that, then collect your urine, you're more likely to kind of stir the bug up and then and then see it. But I don't think there's a perfect test, but there's definitely a lot of different testing companies out there. And, you know, word of caution is you can definitely drop drop a, a few bucks just trying to determine whether it's Lyme or not from testing. But um, hopefully that continues to advance. Yeah. So from maybe from a symptom standpoint, um, or is that a better guide? Because I've heard and read some articles that Lyme is likely very much underdiagnosed and there are probably many people suffering with it who don't know that they are. In fact, in my state, I think there are actually zero confirmed cases with the CDC. They say Lyme does not exist in our area. And I know several people personally who have had it. So is it underdiagnosed and what are some of the symptoms someone would look for? Yeah. What, what state are you in? We're in Kentucky. Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, research has found that there's ticks with Lyme disease found in every single state in the United States. Um, and Lyme, there's been Lyme, you know, quote unquote, that's been contracted in every single state now documented and accepted, you know, you get definitely some arguments, but symptoms, it symptoms can be uh, rather challenging too. And th this is definitely the gray area, which I think is what makes Lyme disease rather difficult to understand, to treat, because it can mimic so many different things. I think a good starting point is if somebody's been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, um, fibromyalgia, autoimmune conditions such as like lupus or RA, uh, stands for rheumatoid arthritis, or MS, multiple sclerosis. Um, I, from a clinical side, I would say let's make sure to rule Lyme out that it's not a piece to the puzzle. Or, I mean, it literally could be like the cause of the diagnosis as well. I'm not saying it's always 100%, but if you've been diagnosed with that, that would key in on Lyme for sure. Symptom-wise, there's over 150 different symptoms somebody could have with Lyme, which is um, pretty crazy. There's different types of Lyme, like a little bit more of neurologic type Lyme that can affect more of like the nervous system versus, you know, a little bit more of the arthritis type things. A few symptoms that stand out that I think the listener can take away, Katie, is if they have arthritis that moves around the body uh, or, you know, kind of like the moving arthritis, like, oh my gosh, today my left shoulder hurts. It just feels like it's all arthritic. And then the next day it doesn't hurt and it's a different area. Like, oh, my knee hurts or my hip hurts. And then, oh, it's, it kind of keeps moving around. That would key in on Lyme disease for sure from a symptom standpoint. Wax and waning pain, you know, where you have pain, but it's like good one day, the next day it's bad. Um, you know, kind of coming and going that, that would be for me, at least clinically really point to, uh, Lyme disease. And then one, one symptom really interesting, a sore sternum or like breastbone. So right where your ribs meet the front of your chest area, basically the junction of the sternum to the rib. If you poke around in there with your fingers and you can do this right now, assuming the per uh, assuming you're not driving or anything and it's safe. Uh, if you're poking around in there and it, I mean, it's, it's okay to have some soreness in there, but if you push on it and you're like, Whoa, that, that does not feel good. That would be a sign for myself, uh, you know, clinically saying, yeah, Lyme, Lyme could be a piece to the puzzle. That's really interesting and, and helpful. I think it's, it feels like Lyme is kind of a moving target trying to figure out if you have it or if you, if it could be part of your puzzle, like you said, and for you, uh, there's definitely a very personal story here. So can you talk about how you got into this world and kind of your wife's story? Yeah, it, it definitely was not one day waking up like, oh, I think uh, Lyme disease would be a great topic to start researching and helping people. Um, it was more just, yeah, out of the need to uh, save my wife's life. So a little back history on my wife. She, When she was seven years old, she got sick. Uh, they gave her some medications that cause brain encephalitis, which is a fancy word, way to say uh, brain swelling. And then she went into a coma for six weeks. And it was through that process. And she's 34. Four, uh, 34, 30, about turned 35 right now, the time that we're doing this. Uh, so seven years uh, old was obviously a while ago. And at the time, her mom was hearing something about Lyme disease, like, oh, there's thing called Lyme disease. Can you check for it? And the doctor's like, no, no. And then eventually check for it. And it was the classical test, but it came back positive. And they're like, oh, well, she has Lyme disease. Never 
had a tick, never had a bullseye rash. And from that point, um, basically they started her with IV antibiotics. She was on that for about a year or oral antibiotics for like another year and just health history, like health problem after health problem ensued. She uh, was supposed to go to like junior Olympics for swimming and couldn't because of health issues and sinuses scraped. When she was uh, 18, she had a couple heart ablations. One, The first one, quote unquote, didn't take. The second one apparently did, but then started having some symptoms later again. So she had a couple heart surgeries. And, and when I met her, it was after the heart surgeries. It was when we were in college and she was actually doing pretty good. Um, but with her history, she always felt like she was the guinea pig. And so we never like dove into it. We just kind of did healthy stuff to get by. And she had some crashes here and there. But um, when my daughter was born about five years ago, that's when the bottom fell out and she almost died. And I, I mean, there's so many uh, stressful nights. We're just wondering, you know, is she going to wake up in the morning and if she doesn't like what am I going to do with a little newborn and you know we only we, we have one one child now and um you know hadn't haven't been a parent before you know this is all new and very scary and um you know kind of really makes me sad to think about what what I was thinking about back then but this is a tough situation and one of the first things that came to mind was Lyme disease could it be Lyme coming back and at the time we ran uh Pharmacin Labs just came out with the eye spot test which I was a fan of um, for a little while, and then I think something happened with the lab, but hopefully they're they're back on track and, and moving forward. Uh, but it showed up not only positive, but in the acute phase. So like the eye spot will give you a number, over 25 is positive, under 17 is negative, and then in between, you know, the 17 to 25 range is what they call equivocal, like in the middle, we're not really sure. Well, she came up 88. She was like not only positive, but she was in an acute phase. We're like, okay, Lyme is in acute mode. And then the other thing that came up was, uh, wait a minute, you know, she had lead heavy metal toxicity and mercury heavy metal toxicity that we couldn't figure out how to detox from it. She kept reacting, so we kind of backed off. I wonder if that's a piece. Um, and basically when the bottom fell out, it shifted me from the um, high volume corrective chiropractic world to what does my wife need to do to, you know, save her life. And, and as she got well, then others started coming. I, I guess I had no, no idea there was so many others like her. And, uh, then it just got so busy that we ended up selling our practice, the chiropractic side and just do, you know, Lyme disease. Now we work virtually, uh, with clients with Lyme disease. So. Wow. That's incredible. So what were some of the specifics that helped her? I know, uh, I have had quite a few questions actually from listeners and readers about Lyme disease, and I'm thinking this is probably a big problem that's affecting quite a lot of people. So what was it that you guys did that got her well? I know there were several pieces to this puzzle, but kind of talk us through that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, I, I really would agree with you that it is a big issue, and, and I, I feel like unfortunately in the next couple of years, it's going to be even more known, um, you know, number wise, like CDC in 2013, I believe they changed, they said 30,000 people contract Lyme a year. Then they changed it in 2013 to 300,000. And there's, there's a good, and that's each year. Like that's more people that are affected with Lyme than breast cancer, which is really scary when you think about it. And there's a good number of people that feel like that number is pretty conservative because it was just looking at like at, I think 96% of, of their, data was from 13 states, which, you know, Lyme, I would say, uh, doesn't know borders. So, it, you know, it can affect, you know, many areas, but getting back to like, what did, what did my wife do to get her? Well, um, the big thing was figure out what are the upstream sources for her? So this is, I, I feel like an important point for, for the listener to understand is, okay, if you have Lyme disease, which is a bacteria, our thought process typically is, well, let's kill the bacteria. But with Lyme, I would say in the chronic Lyme disease state, which means you've had it for over, you know, eight weeks, um, typically a lot longer than that. But, you know, if you just did not contract it, you get into the chronic phase. And there's always other pieces to the puzzle that need to be addressed. Probably some of the most common ones clinically I see, Katie, uh, mold exposure will trigger Lyme disease. Emotional stress, like somebody going through a divorce or losing losing a loved one. So there's you know the emotional stress that's a big thing. There's the chemical stress, which you know like mold or you know um, getting ex you know breaking some of the um, what are those called the the CFL bulbs and mercury exposure. You know so you get you get mercury vaporized and you get you know mercury absorption. Those different stressors can trigger kind of the spiral to exhibit symptoms where maybe you had the bacteria before, but you didn't have any symptoms and all of a sudden you did, you know, so there's things that definitely 
set people over. But for my wife, it was primarily uh, going after the pathogen, Lyme disease, and other co-infections. So there's many, uh, they always term them co-infections because there's like other bugs that typically are in the body with Lyme disease. And it's kind of to the aspect to think about that Lyme can only survive and persist in a weakened state or when the body's in a weakened state. So where we can make a lot of tracks, I personally believe at least, is if we work, look at the body as a whole holistically and build the body up, then we're creating an environment that's not favorable for bad things to take effect. So, but usually when chronic Lyme is there, it's an environment that's favorable for bugs. So not only is there Lyme, but there's other bugs like uh, other viruses like Epstein-Barr, HHV, uh, which stands for the human herpes virus. And it's not just a sexually transmitted STD. There's a bunch of different uh, herpes type viruses. There's other bacteria like Bartonella, which is really big for causing people to have painful muscle spasm cramps, uh, like in the calves, painful uh, feet. Like when you first wake up in the morning, you step down, you got that pain in the feet, you know. Um, so you've got bacteria, you've got viruses, then you've got parasites. Uh, one of the probably most known parasite is Babesia. So really for her, it was addressing what I would consider the pathogen side of things, which is a pretty big category. And then the toxicity side and the toxicity was by far the biggest one for her. She had done a test back in 2007, a urine challenge where she took some DMSA and then collected the urine for at the time was 24 hours. Uh, we know you don't have to do it that long now, but uh, and basically super high mercury and super high lead came out. And so we knew with her that she had lead mercury toxicity. So the main thing that we started doing was actually detoxing her and going after pathogens. But the, I guess maybe the wild card with my wife was that it seemed like she reacted to everything. And especially after my daughter was in a rough state, she was very sensitive and little things would set her off. Like they're when uh, it was about two months in when it was probably at its worst after my daughter was born where she reacted to every single food. The only thing she could drink uh, or eat was uh, drinking water and then bone broth for about 17 days. She'd have a piece of like lettuce and her throat would swell up. She'd have any other thing. It would, it, her body was just such a, like an inflamed state. So for her, it was, you know, calming the inflammation down. You're not going to kill pathogens or detox in that state. So it's kind of like get out of the emergency state and then open up the drainage pathways, um, which we can talk more about. I think that would probably be really beneficial for the listener, but open up the drainage pathways to get the stuff, the normal flow of crud, if you are uh, will moving in the body and then detoxing the heavy metals out and killing the pathogens. And it was really that, that, you know, completely changed and transformed her life. Wow. So how long did that entire process take? And were there like, were there rough patches for her along that, along that road? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. How long? I get the question often, Katie, you know, was well, how's Heather doing? And I'm like, she's healthier now than she's ever been. Is she a hundred percent? I don't know if she's a hundred, I would say 95 easy, you know? Um, but it seems like there's just like keeps peeling layers back and just like a higher level of health. To get out of the acute phase, I think took probably about three or four months with her. And then as far as like the healing after getting out of that acute emergency phase, it was probably a year, year and a half. It was, it, I mean, it seemed like a long time, probably just because we were living, living through it. And then also just the trial and error. I mean, going to anybody and everybody we could think of, you know, that might have any value to us and trying things. And, um, that's kind of where the whole, uh, I wrote a book called the five steps to restoring health protocol. Um, you can just find it right on Amazon, just type, you know, Jay Davidson or Dr. Jay Davidson. It's like the first thing that comes up, but that's kind of where that was birthed from was just the, the process that seemed to end up working for her just kind of, you know, wrote a book about that. And I'd work with clients, after that and verified, yeah, this actually really works well. But, you know, I'd say a little less than two years probably total, but there was definitely a lot of trial error and a lot of, a lot of frustration, stress. Um, I think the emotional stress was probably the most, just kind of that wonder, you know, is she ever going to get, you know, fully well? Will she, you know, ever be able to have kids again if, if we want more kids? I mean, it was a pretty big pretty big trauma, you know, with, with her almost dying after having the first one. So, uh, I think the emotional stress was probably the, the biggest wild card in the, in the, 
or, you know, emotional mind thoughts uh, was the wild card in the whole process. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine. And that, of course, impacts your physical health so much as well. Um, I want to go a little bit deeper, though. You mentioned drainage and you also mentioned detox. So can you talk about what you did to facilitate those and what the difference is if there is one? Yeah, yeah. So I love uh, I love to distinguish the words, thank you, uh, detox versus drainage. So detox seems to very be like the only word people use, like detox this, I detox that. I've you know, done detox. And I feel like it's such a broad word, it doesn't really specify. So I love to use drainage in addition to detox to kind of differentiate. So my, here's my simple definition of detox. It's when you're pulling chemicals out of the body, whether they're heavy metals or biotoxins or, you know, uh, pesticides, radiation, whatever it is, you're pulling them out. Drainage, I like to think of it as more of like the pathways that just need to stay open and moving for your body just to normally function. So like, an example of draining pathway, a really easy one is the colon. So if you're constipated, you're not going number two, that's a drainage pathway, not moving. We got to work on that. So the colon's a drainer. Uh, the kidneys uh, is a drainer. The skin, if you don't sweat, that's actually a, a draining issue. My wife didn't sweat for many years. She didn't even have to use deodorant for many years, which, you know, she we thought was like an amazing blessing realizing, no, that's actually kind of a curse because she's not draining, you know, like that pathway is not, not open. Uh, so colon, kidney, skin, uh, the liver bile duct systems of super important. I'd say it's probably one of the most important drainage areas. You've got the lymphatic system and then the brain that connects to the lymphatic system or what I like to refer to as like brain drainage. So drainage is all about just you know, making sure these pathways are open and moving, moving so that any normal function that the body's doing can clear that stuff out. Detox is when you're specifically going to like the next level and pulling, you know, chemicals out like heavy metals or pesticides or whatnot. Those are just my definitions, I guess, of detox versus drainage. Gotcha. That makes sense. So what are some of the ways you like to facilitate both detox and drainage or what were some parts of her key protocol in that way? Yeah. Um, one of the most, probably the, the most important keys for her was opening up the drainage pathways before she detoxed. So we, um, she had tried to detox heavy metals back in 2007, 2008. She reacted both times, uh, and then just got gun shy. Like, you know, just, I don't want to be trying this and end up, you know, worse off, feeling worse off. So, um, we pretty much just kind of put that on the shelf and said, oh, there's no way to detoxify heavy metals. Uh, you know, she reacted to DMSA, which was a true or is a true chelating agent. Then we had another doctor say, oh, no, you need to take DMPS or um, brand name was called Mercout. And then, you know, I actually was detoxing with her. I'm kind of I was like that tag along guy. You know, I did the test and I had high heavy metals. I'm like, well, I want to do this, too, you know. Um, and I actually reacted to DMPS and it, it freaked her out and she wasn't doing great. But um, so we kind of just backed away from it. And the key that we found, definitely looking back on it, of how everything fell in line was just open up the drainage pathway. And that liver bile duct system is by far the most important one. And that's that's one that uh, listener, you know, your listener can easily start improving on. If you have chronic illness, I think that liver bile duct area is typically almost always clogged and it plays such an important relationship with so many other parts of your body too, Katie. So if the, so maybe I'll just back up to liver anatomy for a second. So your liver is like the front, right, lower rib cage area. It, it's essentially like the detoxing organ of your body. It's got something called phase one uh, detox and then something called phase two, where it basically transforms a chemical into actually a little bit more dangerous chemical to get it to phase two and then phase two kind of neutralizes it. Uh, so your body does detox through the liver. And then the liver makes bile, which gets pushed into the bile duct. And if you have a gallbladder still, it, it's stored in the sac, gallbladder sac. And then when you eat, you know, the gallbladder squeezes to emulsify bile to help you digest food. Well, toxins, after they're processed from the liver, most of them end up getting dumped into the bile. So the bile starts getting thick and sludgy from these toxins. And the reason why it starts getting thick and sludgy is when bile gets pushed into the GI tract, a lot of it will end up recycled because bile's from an energy like ATP, how much energy it takes the body to make bile, it's expensive. So it likes to recycle it. Well, when it recycles it, the toxin goes along with it. So this bile starts to get kind of thick and sludgy. And then that movement 
uh, gets clogged up. And then there's other things that can clog it up besides toxicity. Parasites love the bile duct area, uh, especially Giardia and some other things. Um, but if this liver bile duct area is clogged, automatically means the lymphatic system is clogged because the lymphatic depends on the liver bile duct system. If the lymphatic system is clogged, automatically then the brain is going to have an issue draining and, and what's termed like the glymphatic system. And, and now we know the lymph is connected right to the brain. But essentially, I like to kind of separate brain versus the rest of the body, lymph, and then you've got the liver um, bile duct system. So I think that's one of the most important areas. And as far as like tools, I mean, it you can pretty much every supplement company uh, on the planet has something for the liver or the gallbladder, typically, you know, as far as from like a formula. So if you've got like a favorite company, you can use that. There's a lot of things, though, that I would say are, you know, maybe a little bit more of health protocol, uh, things where you don't necessarily need a supplement, or you can even do teas, like dandelion root tea is one of my favorites. I love that. It helps to increase bile production, the bile movement, actually helps to drain the kidneys as well, too. So I love dandelion root tea for sure. So somebody that doesn't sleep well at night, uh, sometimes it's just your liver going into its healing function between like that 2 to 4 a.m. period. And uh, the bile can get clogged up. So drinking some dandelion root tea even before bed uh, sometimes can actually be a big helper for people to sleep better. Coffee enemas, I originally heard of them years ago for more weight loss, but realizing coffee enemas uh, help to purge the bile and help to get movement in there. It actually helps to increase glutathione, which is um, kind of a detoxer as well of the body. But uh, coffee enemas, you can do like castor oil packing where you put castor oil on your skin and put like a ideally like an infrared pad on your skin, not just a classic heating pad, but any any type of heat kind of helps. And the castor oil is very drawing, so it can kind of pull stuff from that area to clear that out. Um, there's more brutal things like the liver gallbladder flush where you drink the olive oil, grapefruit, and you're drinking Epsom salt before and after to kind of flush it out. That one I think you want to be a little careful with if you're not in a great health state because it's, it's a little uh, stressful on the body. But there's you know many things um, that are very helpful for that liver bile duct area. That's a great list. And I think, uh, at least for me and maybe some other people listening as well, like the idea of getting Lyme and realizing that it's more common than you thought and there's more ways to get it, especially even mosquitoes, is pretty terrifying. And And I know people, the question may be, is there any way to avoid it or to make sure it never gets to the serious nature like as as your wife had it? Um, so do you have any tips for that about preventing Lyme and or avoiding ticks and, and other ways that it could be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my wife uh, still to this day, um, doesn't like to go in the woods just from, you know, her past experience of Lyme and, and kind of that, that's still an emotional thing that, that, uh, we need to address. So grassy, long grassy areas, and there's different parts of the United States that are more prevalent. Northeast is very well known for quote unquote tick country and Lyme disease, you know, from Lyme, Connecticut, uh, area where, uh, Lyme got its uh, you know original name. The Midwest, um, Michigan now we're seeing is a pretty big area. Minnesota and Wisconsin, especially northern areas are are very prevalent. Uh, northern California actually, like where uh, Robin Williams grew up, right north there of San Francisco. Um, I almost you know wonder if he had Lyme in in addition to any other issues he had. But um, so there's different areas that are definitely more prevalent. But it, it they're all over. Um, as far as if you're in a very tick-heavy area, I would say wearing light-colored clothing, like light socks, light pants, tucking your pants into your socks, and then just after you like come in to do literally like a tick sweep or a tick check, you know, make sure you don't have anything on you. Um, if you have pets, that's a really important thing to check them regularly. And the the key takeaway is if you get a tick bite, um, or, you know, like technically, like I said, a sting, you want to figure out how do you remove it properly. So when a tick, uh, stings, it pokes and then it's got these barbs. So if you pull on the tick, the barbs are going to engage like more. So it's going to hold on to the tick. Well, if you think, well, how does a tick remove itself? It twists its head like 90 degrees or sometimes a little bit more. And what happens is these barbs then fold in and then it can just pull the mouth out. So most important thing is if you find a tick on you to remove it properly, there's inexpensive tick removal devices you can get on Amazon or, you know, um, most pet stores. And it's essentially kind of like a, reminds me of like a spork where it's, um, essentially like a spoon with a V in the middle and, and you just kind of scoop under the tick. So it's the, the, 
um, tick removal or the spork, if you will, is between the skin and the tick. And then you just start twisting. And as you twist it, it's folding the barbs in. And then you can just pull the tick right out. The worst thing that you can do is to irritate the tick when it's already on the skin. Um, it, whether it's, you know, burning the tick right on the skin or putting rubbing alcohol on it or this big thing I'm, I'm seeing more and more is people pouring peppermint oil, essential oil right on the tick and then the tick, you know, detaches. I'm a huge fan of essential oils, but I would like strongly recommend never use essential oils when the tick is attached or anything else because what that what happens is the tick gets irritated and then it will throw up inside of you, which is more likely than to transmit something in you. So the first step is tick removal device. So you, you know, go buy an inexpensive one, have it as part of your quote unquote health cabinet. So if you ever see a tick, you know, you can scoop it, twist, remove it. Then you can put whatever you want on it, you know, whether it's like worm seed oil or uh, clove or, you know, any type of blend, you know, from your favorite, you know, essential oil, you can put that on, but put that on after the tick is removed because you just don't want to irritate the tick and have it throw up more. And another uh, a myth in the tick transmission is that the tick has to be attached at least 24 to 48 hours before it'll transmit Lyme disease. This is a big myth because the research was done on animals. And if you think, you know, the research was done, for instance, on you know, looking at dogs, typically dogs are pretty hairy compared to, you know, maybe like somebody's arm. And, and, and granted, I guess there's some people with hairier, you know, body parts and arms than others, but it's kind of that tick having to migrate from the hair to get to the skin so it can take longer. There's doctors like, um, there's one in California, Dr. Sanjas Schweg. He's had clients that they left in the morning, went uh, kayaking or canoeing, came back, found a tick on their skin with a bullseye rash and it had been less than eight hours. So we know that transmitting Lyme disease can happen pretty quickly. The first thing is just get the tick off of you. And if you can prevent having them, there's actually clothing. I'm trying to remember. I feel like the name is perma something where you can, they actually like soak the clothing in it and then you can like wear the socks with it on and even pants on. Uh, I'm sure if you can, you Google Lyme disease preventative like clothing, there's uh, a few manufacturers I know at least out there. I've seen I've seen a few of them at some different conferences and things, but that might be a really good thing. I would definitely stress the tick removal device. And then there's companies actually where you can send the tick in to see if the tick actually has any type of bacteria or co-infection of Lyme disease. That's that that you can do. I honestly though would just go homeopathic route. Um, and this is just my personal belief. So the medical world and I think there's a place for antibiotics in acute Lyme. Um, you know, so if you get stung by a tick, you get a bullseye rash, you can take doxycycline for, you know, two to four weeks and, you know, probably blast that away. I, I, I'm just, I just, if much as I can lean away from that, I do. And I love, uh, homeopathy for any, uh, there was an expert, Joette Calabrese I had on the chronic Lyme disease summit number two, and she's been in the homeopathy, homeopathic world for years and just brilliant. And she's like any type of sting, bug sting, there's a homeopath called uh, Latum Palestra uh, that you can use. And it's the same thing for Lyme. So if you have, uh, you know, if I was going to say, you know, health cabinet preventative, I'd have a tick removal device. I'd have the homeopathic and they're, you know, maybe like eight bucks. You can get them at typically like a health food store, Whole Food or um, yeah, Whole Foods or even online, you know, Amazon, like the Latum. I would have the the Latum and I would have a tick removal device as kind of the bare minimum. And then, you know, if you have some type of like pathogen killing essential oil, once you remove the tick, you can put that on as well, too. I think those are probably the most important things as far as like prevention and not letting it go, you know, nuts in the body, if you will. Yeah, that's really helpful. That was going to be one of my next questions was whether there is a time and a place for antibiotics. That seems to be the conventional medicine, medical answer, but it's good to know there are also alternatives. Um, and so, and also kind of like what you would do, what your first course of, of action would be. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen me mention them because I have been using and loving and Instagramming their products for years. They have an amazing instant mushroom coffee. Hear me out before you think it's weird. I know mushroom coffee doesn't sound good. It's not only the best instant coffee I've ever tried. It's also pretty high up on the list of best coffee I've tried. It's cheaper than coffee shop coffee and it's so convenient because it's so portable and it tastes so much better. But it isn't just ordinary coffee. It has superfood mushrooms like lion's mane, cordyceps, and chaga mushrooms. 
And these mushrooms have some big health benefits and especially immune benefits. I personally especially love them for the energy and the mental clarity without the jitters from traditional coffee. And did I mention how good it tastes? So I always take these instant coffee packets with me when I travel and I also always drink it at home these days now that they have a big tin that lasts about a month so I don't have to open a little packet every day. Some friends of ours recently traveled for three months carrying only the backpacks on their backs and they brought an entire three-month supply of this instant coffee in their bag that had limited space. In other words, this coffee beat out a pair of jeans for how important it was to make it in the bag. It's that good. And of course, if you aren't a caffeine person, they also have a variety of mushroom teas and other products that don't have the coffee, so you can get the benefits without the caffeine. And I love them so much that I reached out and they agreed to give a discount to my listeners. So go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama to get 10% off. That's foursigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash wellnessmama. This episode is sponsored by Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. If you love the benefits of bone broth, but don't love the time it takes to make and how tough it can be to find quality bones to make broth, Kettle and Fire is for you. Their bone broth is a regular staple in my kitchen these days, and it's what I use to create the recipes in my new bone broth ebook. So they only use bones from 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised cattle that are never given hormones or antibiotics. Their broth is also unique because they focus on bones that are especially high in collagen, which is one of the healthiest things you can put in your body. You can find them at many Whole Foods on the West Coast, and you can also order online and get a discount at kettleandfire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. Again, that's kettleandfire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. Do you feel like there's a lot of misconceptions regarding Lyme disease? And what do you see as some of the bigger ones? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the acute versus chronic. So I um, interviewed a couple times uh, Dr. Kenneth Stoller. He's in the San Francisco area, medical doctor for 30 plus years. And one of his and, and this, I think, just adds to the controversial line. But he said um, that if somebody actually gets a bullseye rash, that means they already have Lyme and now they're re- reactivating it because it's an IgG response. So it gets a little gray as to, you know, how do you know if somebody's actually acute or if it's, you know, if it's been in the body for a while and just re-aggravating and, and you know, being chronic. I definitely think there's a place for antibiotics uh, for those that, you know, are more comfortable using that. But I, I really would stress the acute phase. And then once it's out of the quote unquote acute phase after six or eight weeks, then I don't know, I've just seen too many clients that have went that route and, and had, had a lot of issues because the antibiotics, most people know it, you know, damages the gut bacteria and things, but it actually uh, damages the mitochondria and more and more research is pouring out on the mitochondria that they're the ATP factories of your cells and they make energy. And if you damage those, well, then you're going to be, you know, you're not going to have cellular energy. Um, so especially somebody like with chronic fatigue and, you know, adrenal fatigue and just struggling even to get up. I mean, that, that would just be a word of caution that I would look at. So the misconception of acute versus chronic, I'd say there's definitely some, you know, arguments there, man, there's, there's just so many. Um, I think another, uh, I believe another one is that Lyme is only in certain areas. There's a Dr. Ray Stricker that's through research and, and, uh, he's found that migratory birds actually will carry ticks, which has been a big contributor to why Lyme disease is worldwide right now. It's been found on every continent except for Antarctica. So I think that that's a big misconception is, oh, you have to be in, you know, New York or Connecticut or Minnesota, you know, to get Lyme disease. And then another one actually is there's different types of Borrelia. So Borrelia borgdorferi is a specific like uh, strain and species, and that's what's been known to cause Lyme. But now they've identified there's another one called Borrelia myoni that causes Lyme. The Mayo Clinic actually discovered that, so they kind of named it after themselves, myoni. And then there was another one discovered called myomotai, so Borrelia myomotai that causes Lyme. So misconception is that it's only Borrelia burgdorferi, which I, I, I believe is some of the issue with the testing is you're, you know, the tests for the most part, most testing will look for just one strain, uh, like the DNA connections that uh, urine PCR, I believe, looks right now for three different Borrelia strains. But there's there's over 100 different Borrelia strains in the U.S. There's over 300 across the world. So now it's just it's uh, it's just not straightforward, you know, which can be frustrating. But 
you know, the more you understand about it, the easier it is to to guide and, and get the body well. That makes sense. And I've always wondered, and maybe you have some insight on this, is there an immune component to Lyme as well? Like we all, we see the kind of overlap between autoimmune disease and other problems and Lyme disease. Do you think it's possible that some people with a strong enough immune system may be more resistant to contracting Lyme? Or what do you think is the immune role there? Yeah. If you're, if you're susceptible, like if your immune system is not functioning at an optimal level, you're going to be more susceptible to having getting chronic Lyme and not being able to get over it. Um, you know, the, the overall body status, super important Lyme. I don't know if this is answering your question, but Lyme over time will create autoimmune issues in the body. Lyme will literally like go inside the cell. So after, after it's been in the body a little bit, it'll actually go inside of our cells and kind of look like our cells, but it will shift our immune system to something called TH2 dominance. Uh, and, and TH1 TH1 dominance like will drive things into the cell. TH2 kind of drives things out from a basic immune standpoint. So Lyme, when it goes inside the cells, it shifts the immune system into like a TH2 dominance, which creates autoimmunity. And I, and I believe that's part of its protective mechanism is to kind of keep the immune system out of the cell where it's, you know, hiding and pretending to be. And then the body knows like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right. Uh, and it goes after its own cells that it thinks Lyme is inside and then, you know, can mistake other cells that don't have Lyme in them and it can start attacking itself. So there's been some good clinical evidence of even like co-infections like Bartonella triggering Hashimoto's and, and thyroid issues. I have a good friend, Dr. Evan Hirsch, that's seen um, amazing healing testimonies of people like uh, he's a medical doctor in the Northwest, literally being able to get off of thyroid meds when they address uh, infections like Bartonella, for instance, which is a co-infection of Lyme. So does that answer your question or were you asking something else? No, that absolutely does. Are there any, on a practical level, are there any things that can help with those infections and also with Lyme that you use often with your patients? Yeah. So, um, there's tons of protocols online and it can definitely get overwhelming. The Cowden protocol, the Zong looks like Zang, Zang protocol, um, Byron White protocol. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't think there's a CAN protocol because it can be so different among people's bodies and what's what the other bugs are. Um, there's definitely been a good amount of people that have gotten well from all those protocols, but then there's been a good amount of people that haven't too. So I think customization is, especially in somebody in a challenging position, is like ideal is how do you customize what they need. And then even more importantly in that is in what order. Um, Cause there's certain times where like, for instance, if you have, let's just say you have three co-infection or three bugs, you have Borrelia, which is Lyme, you have Babesia, which is a co-infection and Bartonella. Well, there's times where they'll pick like, okay, Borrelia, you get, you get to run the show, we'll tag along. Well, then you kind of knock the Borrelia down and it's like, oh, wait, uh, we got Babesia and Bartonella. Okay, Bartonella, you get to run the show now. And there's a thing uh, in, in the bug world called quorum sensing and it essentially just means like the bugs have cell phones and they can communicate throughout the body. So they've shown in research like when you take an antibiotic that a Lyme spirochete within 20 minutes will literally change into that cyst ball because it's like a thousand times stronger against antibiotics in a cyst ball formation, you know, that it literally can communicate throughout the body and bugs, bugs do this synonymously. So, um, understanding, like you can definitely look at symptomatology, you know, if somebody has like night sweats or heart palpitations, um, Babesia is probably, you know, going to be top of the list. If somebody suffers more with like headaches, you know, like brain tension, swelling, uh, muscle spasms in the calves, the bottom of the feet hurt. Um, that, that could be more of a Bartonella thing. And that's commonly found with people that have been around cats. Uh, they call it cat scratch fever, Bartonella. Um, so if you have cats, you could, you know, maybe assume Bartonella might be part of that. You know, Lyme disease, like we mentioned, kind of that wax and waning pain, moving arthritis, you know, sore sternum, those kind of symptoms. So you can kind of look from a clinical symptom standpoint and say, okay, what are the you know, most important ones or what, what seems to be kind of running the show now and then go after those. And there's, you know, there's pretty good formulas like Byron White has formulas specifically for like Bartonella, for B Borrelia or, or Lyme um, and Babesia, but they're very, they're also very strong too. So it's, it's something, if somebody's struggling with Lyme, I, I love when people learn and move forward on their own, but I would always recommend having somebody to help guide you because there's also that 
it's complex, but there's also the emotional side. We kind of get lost in our own emotions and can get tunnel vision. And we just want to make sure we're seeing the whole, whole picture. Cause, uh, health is just, I mean, well, as you know, Katie, it's, it's just so important. So. Yeah, that's great advice. I think you're absolutely right. And I always love to ask toward the end of an interview also, both as a practitioner and just someone who is focused on being healthy. Are there any things you do in, a, in your day-to-day life or as part of your routine that you feel have the biggest impact on your health or your mental or physical well-being? Oh, yeah. I love that question. Um, so it's been it's been a big shift. Um, I'm definitely that workaholic type guy. So, you know, like, we moved from Wisconsin to San Diego, bought a 1,200 square foot house, tiny, uh, compared to what we had in Wisconsin. And I had my office in the third bedroom, which was like 15 feet from the living room. So I'd always kind of wander out there. And then my wife's like, no, this isn't cool. This is like family time. So we built this little little building in the backyard and that's kind of my office where I'm at now. So in order for me to work, like I have to physically like leave the house and, you know, walk in the backyard to get to it and then come back, you know, to create separation. But in the last year, I've really been focusing on the health side of looking at my life and saying, okay, does what I'm do right now, does this build my energy up or take it down? And really trying to put more of my effort into things that help to build my energy up. So for instance, right now when we're doing this interview, I'm standing at my desk. I've got one of those Ikea, you know, stand, sit desks. Um, I pretty much always leave it standing now. And then I'm standing on a yoga mat that on top of the yoga mat, cause it's like a hardwood floor, the yoga mats on the hardwood floor and then I have an earthing mat on top of that. So I'm kind of grounded. I'm standing. I've got a blue blocker or like a blue light um, program in my computer that uh, it's called Iris. There's Flux, and then uh, actually on the new Macs or Apples, they have night sh- uh, shift already built into them, but uh, that pulls blue light out. So, you know, I'm not trying to strain my eyes. So I think a big thing in my life is just really evaluating what do I do and how do I minimize stress? So that way when I'm done working for the day, I'm, you know, I, I'm hanging out with my daughter and wife, I'm energized and I'm there and I'm not, you know, just like, Oh, I'm just so wiped out. I can't do anything. So I think that's probably one of the biggest, biggest things from a lifestyle standpoint. That's definitely great advice that anyone can benefit from as well. The being present and being there. And, um, also where can people find you, especially anyone who may worry that after hearing that list of symptoms that they might have Lyme, um, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, easiest place is just my main, main website. It's Dr. J. Davidson. So Dr. is D-R, J is J-A-Y, and then Davidson, uh, like the motorcycle uh, Harley Davidson, just unfortunately uh, no relationship. So drjdavidson.com is the best spot. Awesome. And I'll make sure to link to that and to your book in the show notes as well. Um, thank you so much for all of your research in this area and for also taking the time to share with us today. Uh, thank you for all you do, Katie. You are a life-changing lifesaver uh, as well. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'll see you next time on the Healthy Moms Podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.